Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Managing Director of L Acoustics, Guillaume Lenost. But first of all, we've heard for quite a while now that Facebook isn't compelling to young users, and there are fewer and fewer that are actually signing on. It looks like that's really the case, according to the documents leaked by Facebook insider Francis Hogan. Now, if you're not following the news, she appeared before a Senate panel on consumer protection a couple of weeks ago, and she had all these documents that she brought with her that really showed what's going on inside Facebook. Now, it turns out that Facebook only reports the data that it chooses to. So, in other words, it's releasing data to the public that only makes it look good. So, for instance, when it says it has 3.5 billion users, that's actually across the Facebook family of apps, which is Facebook, Messenger, Instagram, and WhatsApp. It turns out that the documents say that young users are just not there. And the reason why is the platform stopped being cool a long time ago, some say as long as nine years ago. Facebook knew that, and it bought Instagram in order to overcome the problem. And it did work for a while. Instagram went from about 50 million users to as many as 1 billion users, but it really hasn't grown since 2018. And that's about the time when TikTok came on the scene. TikTok, of course, is the social media platform of choice for young users, especially teen users. Now, this actually started a roller coaster inside Facebook. Even though the company brought in $100 billion in revenue last year, yeah, $100 billion, it's really making a lot of money. It's under a lot of pressure. And of course, some of the worst pressure comes from the fact that it's not replacing new users, especially young new users. So that means that they gotta figure something out. That's why it's pursuing the metaverse concept. So you've probably heard somewhat about this. Metaverse is the idea where virtual reality and real reality merge, and you can't tell which one is which. So Facebook is going headfirst into that. It also changed its name to Meta, M-E-T-A. This is along the same lines as Google, which changed its corporate name to Alphabet. And here we have the same thing. So Meta actually owns Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger. But when it comes to people criticizing Facebook, now instead of the whole entire family of companies, it's just looking at that one division. So is this all going to work? <laughs> I think we all want to know. There are many people that say that the whole metaverse is just an idea that will never happen or will never happen the way Mark Zuckerberg thinks it will. And then... There's another faction that thinks that it's going to really happen, and it's going to happen soon. Regardless, it looks like Facebook has managed to actually take the attention off of some of the problems that it's having, at least in the near term. So we'll see what happens, because there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes at Facebook, and it's not all pretty. <laughs> If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. (laughs) 
Now, I don't know if you've seen this, but it was also in the news last week that Metallica has an online band course. Yeah, it's a course on how to be a band, and it's on masterclass.com. This spans 15 individual video lessons that total about two hours and 45 minutes. And what they want to do is unpack the principles that ensure longevity as a group by being effective communicators and how to manage criticism. Oh, boy. And they also are going to break down some of their greatest hits, including Enter Sandman and Master of Puppets, and provide techniques for songwriting. It's all well and good, but the fact of the matter is, bands are somewhat passe these days. Now, of course, in metal and hard rock, they still thrive, but those genres are not growing at all. One of the reasons why is being in a band is really hard, and anyone who's ever been in one, I suspect most of you out there listening fall into that category, you know that finding band members is a chore, and then the hours and hours of rehearsals. I can remember thinking back when I was playing a lot of clubs that it took nine months of steady gigs just to get vocals together, background vocals, harmony vocals, things like that. Then, of course, you have the politics of band members. And we all know managing personalities is not easy. And of course, it's finding gigs, because if you're not out playing gigs, then most of the band members lose interest. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's just so much about being in a band. So you can see why it's attractive to become a bedroom producer. And that's why most people, in fact, choose this route. I suspect that most people who were in bands, if they had it to do over again they would choose to be a bedroom producer themselves because it gets your musical ideas out without having to worry about anybody else's input. That's what we all wanted anyway. It's so much easier to be creative on your own when you have the tools that are available today. And of course, it wasn't even close to that when most of us were starting. So you can see why being in a band is not terribly attractive these days nor is learning how to master your instrument because it's just not as important as it used to be. When you're playing live, you're under the microscope, everybody can really hear what's going on, whether you're good or bad. Well, of course, when you're in your home studio, you can make sure that all of those parts are perfect because you have lots of time to play them over and over, or you can quantize or you can use a loop. So you don't have to worry so much about all of those things that we used to when we were playing live. So I think this whole Metallica thing, while being a really good idea, is probably too little, too late when it comes to helping bands. My guest this week is Guillaume Lenost, who started in the R&D department at L Acoustics in 2009 and has risen to managing director in the UK. He's also in charge of the company's creative technologies division, which includes development of the ELISA immersive audio system. Prior to that, Gayoum researched industrial environmental noise and binaural synthesis, in which he received his PhD, and he's also had background in audio for gaming as well. During the interview, we spoke about the ELISA Studio Spatial Audio Package, how artists are thinking of immersive audio right from the beginning of a project, spatial audio translation from headphones to a playback system, L Acoustics Blue Space, and much more. I spoke with Gayum from his office in London. You have a very rich background. I was looking yesterday, and boy, you've done a lot. So let's talk about how you got started in music 
and audio and just everything that you do? Um, so music, it was an early start, I would say. Um, as a kid, I was fascinated by the bolero from uh, Ravel, you know, this uh, classical piece of music. And this is what led me to start learning classical flute. And then as a teenager, obviously, I had to start learning guitar. wasn't very good. So I started to play bass guitar and then I joined bands. And I was also really keen to pursue engineering uh, for my studies. So I managed to find a way to combine the two topics. And I, I ended up doing um, a Master of Science at IRCAM, which is a French research center uh, where you can meet a lot of interesting composers using technology and you can talk about room acoustics and and 3d audio and that was a kind of a revelation really and um, this is what really um, uh, you know allowed me to join a bit the two dots between engineering and music and that was really interesting and since then i've i've tried to um, work on projects that could um, you know combine both really i'm curious it, there's so many New concepts, new ideas that come out of AirCam. AirCam seems to be way ahead of everybody else. Why is that? I think it, there was a strong push from uh, the, the initial start of this institution, and uh, it created great uh, trends in the music technology sector. I believe that now it's uh, there is a lot more. There is many research centers that provide bleeding edge um, topics and there is many in the us as well many in the uk in germany we see more and more interesting activities from asia as well so it might have been true um, uh, maybe decades ago but i think now the innovation in the music sector is coming from everywhere so it's really interesting to see that it's it's not only a come anymore i saw that you had a couple of jobs as a researcher so that must have been interesting because you you know it's the science then of acoustics or audio that you're dealing with yes uh, i was really interested into learning more the relationships between you know the technicity of sound and how we perceive so i did a phd in psychoacoustics and uh it was the topic was a bit uh, bizarre for for music to be honest. It was about industrial noise, so um, I ended up re- doing a lot of location recordings throughout France in in grim locations with a lot of you know cooling towers and transformers and, and big machines like that, and design listening experiments to understand how people would perceive that and and this link between. The objective part and the subjective part is really uh, interesting, I find. And when you do a mix as well, it's always interesting. When you when when you do a music um, a music piece or an album, there is always this objective decision you make, and there is the taste. And it's always interesting to compare the two. Sometimes the taste is not. Maybe it's not exactly the decision we'd make if you were to look only at the science. So there is always a balance between the aesthetics and the science, I would say. What did you take away from that study in particular that you've used ever since? <laughs> Maybe something very, uh, very obvious as a personal development is to to look for help when you don't know how to do something. So I think it, it, it helped me a lot in knowing how to get surrounded by people that know more than you. And uh, it's very important when you work on new technologies, you always need 
people that know a specific field of expertise. So I think what I've been trying to build since then at Acoustics is to really uh, gather experts of different domains that can come up together and build uh, great products. When you started with Dell Acoustics, was it originally on Elisa or were you working just on the, the acoustics? Um, I used to work on, on loudspeaker design initially. And uh, when I joined the company, we were still quite small compared to today. So the R&D department was maybe 10 people maximum compared to today where we are, I think, roughly 100 people working in R&D. It was a much smaller uh, team back then. And I was working on the, the loudspeaker uh, design. I worked on some subwoofer and um, um, the arcs, uh, wide and arcs focus series that, uh, that were released a few years after. So then I started to suggest some ideas about signal processing we could develop uh, within the company and it kickstart a bit the, the discussion about um, doing some measurements software already to you know to to provide our users um, uh, really simple means to tune a system and, and do equalization and time alignment with some um, some cool algorithms so this is when we really started to develop and invest heavily in software signal processing electronics back then we didn't really have an electronics department as well so you know it was really from the historical perspective of being a speaker manufacturer now we are really a system provider where we provide everything from network switches even you know we even make switches now which is like <laughs> when you think about where we come from it could be a bit surprising but uh really a, a sound system is really um, a combination of optimized electronics and software and sound systems together that are optimized to make the best sound possible. So it's hard to think about a single element in the chain anymore. You know. Speaking of switches, I saw that you worked as an engineer at a facility that was the, had the, the biggest network in the world. Ah, yes, that was, that was at the time. Uh, it was in a small uh, Parisian venue, and uh, I think we were one of the biggest uh, Ethersound venues at the time. But I think this is a protocol we don't see much nowadays on, on fixed installation projects. And uh, it has been uh, obviously replaced by um, protocols like uh, uh, Dante or AVB or OptoCore. But uh, it was quite interesting at the time. Eh? We already had some issues about connecting different rooms and, and large-scale matrixing. That was quite interesting. We still have the same issues today with other protocols, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. user-facing issues are always quite similar. I got a, uh, a demonstration of Elisa at the factory in, uh, what's Thousand Oaks, is it? Uh, this is a couple years ago. And then I spoke with uh, Scott and had him on, on my podcast, actually. And we spoke about uh, Elisa and in terms of concert sound. So now that's changed and, and now you have Elisa Studio. So how did that come about? So... We started Elisa really as a solution to solve these issues of large-scale stereo for live sound. Um, stereo is great when you when you are in a home environment or studio environment where the distance between the speakers is not too much. So for live sound, it was really an issue, and we tried to come up with better deployments of loudspeakers above the stage um, to solve that issue of providing a good image to more people in the audience. And it started with a hardware solution uh that we call elisa processor 
uh, it's been great for tours and uh, we got a lot of early adopters for you know um, live events festivals uh, arena tours but we 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 quickly realized that when we talk about fixed installations and deploying uh, you know defining um, an you know, uh, a network of venues that could use the system. The, the problem lies in the fact that to create, people need to have access to the technology in the earliest stages possible. So if you have an idea, you want to think about spatial audio from the start, what you need is a way to listen to that very quickly. If you have an idea, oh, I'm going to play in this venue, maybe I would like to prepare my content on my specific, um, it could be a theater production, it could be, sound design for an art gallery it could be a specific remix for a dj party in immersive audio um, so there is a lot of different situations where the creative people need access to listening to special audio in in whatever location they are and it means it has to be a software solution so this is very quickly after we released the hardware solution we started to think about how could we facilitate this workflow from being Either you know, either in the studio or on tour or in a tour bus or in an airport, whenever you are, um, to really give a workflow to be able to monitor on headphones and already start to prep a mix in spatial audio from your own laptop, and then very smoothly transition to a situation where you connect to hardware and you listen to the same creation on loudspeakers. So it's really in transition from. You could compare it as you know going from mi mixing on a mobile version of Pro Tools on your laptop to going to a studio and and listen to the the same thing on loudspeakers. And we with Eliza Studio, it's basically the same workflow. We suggest you can start on your laptop and then finish and and perform with the the hardware processor. It makes so much sense though, because if you start out with a project that's in stereo and you want to make it immersive you don't know what it's like until you actually do it. So, yes, I can see how this would be better all the way around and from the creative side. And even sometimes um, you could see it as an afterthought. So what we see today is quite interesting. You know, there is a lot of artists making Dolby Atmos versions of their albums. When it's designed as an afterthought, maybe the result can be a bit underwhelming because the content hasn't been thought for special audio initially. And when we see there are other um, artists that can think about space from the start, and when you see that, they would create different stems, different tracks, and different ways to compose with space. It's really another dimension you can think about when, you, when you're creating a, a track or a piece. And it's getting very interesting. For example, we, had, um, we collaborated with Brian Eno uh, this summer to create a piece for a museum uh, in, the, in Hyde Park in London. And uh, he spent a few, he had prepared some stems um, and then he, he spent a few days in our studio to, to you know, to prepare the, the special mix of that. And as soon as he started to listen to it in, with the, the special rendering, he started to add more stems and to change a bit the composition. And it was really interesting to see the interaction between spatial hearing and composition. And that was super interesting. Yeah, bad. Uh, but it makes sense. Because it has to sound different. So I could see why you'd want to do this. One of the things that intrigues me about uh, Elissa Studio is that it will work on any workstation. So is, is this in the cloud or is this a plugin that you use? So 
to explain it in an easy way, you could compare it in a way to how the if if uh, if you know the Dolby Atmos production suite, you know, so you have this rendering unit that is actually another piece of software that runs alongside the DAW, and to you need to make connections between the two. So Eliza Studio is actually three components. There is this rendering software that needs to connect to the DAW, and the way to connect it is to define um, audio routings between uh, the DAW and, and this um, processor. So to do that, we use a, an audio bridge that you can just select as an audio interface, and that's very easy to set up. And um, and the last piece is the, the user interface. Excuse me, is that hardware or software? It's pure software. So you could basically be uh, on the beach with your MacBook and uh, just a pair of headphones and do everything from there. You don't need any additional hardware to do that. The only piece of hardware you could add is um, basically a small head tracker that we can um, that you could um, get to get a really good sense of uh, uh, spatial rendering as well. You can attach it very easily to um, um, the top of your uh, pair of headphones. And that's the only additional hardware you could you could get. And it's really helpful to get a, a very good binaural rendering. Is the final product Dolby Atmos compatible? In terms of uh, the components, maybe you, you you could. It's a it's a good way to imagine the workflow if you want from the DAW perspective. But the goal is quite different. We you could say that Dolby Atmos is mostly a post-production tool or uh, the, the end goal is really to release something for the streaming platforms or cinema. So it's really about mastering something for distribution in the end. And I think the goal of Elisa Studio is really about way before that to, to prepare a show, to prepare a performance and to ideate. And, um, and um, so I would say that it's more a creation tool than a post-production tool in a way, and we would we would see more. Uh, it it can be used to do post production as well, but it, it it's very useful to prepare a show and to prepare a performance. So I see it really in uh, in the early stages of um, of a project. How does it translate from headphones to the real world? How close does it translate? That's a great question. So I think. If I start by maybe answer it from a stereo perspective, when you do a stereo mix on headphones or speakers, you know what to expect. I guess there are always differences. Maybe the main difference you could think about is reverb, for example. The level of reverb compared to the, the dry sounds is always a bit different on headphones and speakers. And, and, and mixing engineers know that and they know what to how to adjust it on headphones and what to expect on speakers afterwards. I think for spatial audio, uh, people will understand what they can do and can't do on headphones compared to speakers. And um, I would say that there is a big amount you can do and you can compare. So potentially positioning the, the, the different tracks in space is something you can do on headphones. It might be a bit harder to judge the the aspect of depth in the mix. So the, the proximity of a specific instrument, is it really close to you or inside your head or really outside of your head? And this is related to the binaural technology where 
you know, every person is different and binaural technology relates a bit to the filters that are used for this rendering. And people are more or less sensitive to the, to the different filters that, um, that different um, tools can provide. So in a way, this dimension of the depth and a sound object being very close to you inside your head or really outside of your head might be the most tricky part to judge on headphones, I would say. Uh, apart from that, now with good modern binaural and head tracking, you can really judge if it's in front of you, behind you, on the sides. This is working quite well, I would say. And there are also some, uh, maybe the last dimension we need to be careful about is EQ, right? Where uh, some binaural tools can be very, very strong and color a lot. And we, we try to design our tools in in a direction where the coloration is minimized. So in that regard, I would say that it can be quite trusted, but uh, it might be at the expense of provided a bit less externalization compared to other tools that can be sound a bit more outside of your head, but with more coloration. So it's always a design trade-off, really, when you make such a tool. What is Blue Space? Ah, Blue Space. So Blue Space... Um, it's a, it's two things. It's a format and it's a, a kind of quality label, if you want. So Blue Space is an initiative that we have pushed at Alacoustics to guarantee a level of quality of experience from start to finish. So it starts with guidelines for how to record a specific piece of music, um, guidelines for ways to mix, guidelines for how to present as a playback format and guidelines for a space for reproduction and performances for the loudspeaker system. So we can, on, on, the, on the listening side, you can come with guidelines about the, the RT of the, the listening room and performance of the speaker system. So you could compare it in a way to, you know, when you build a studio, you have some recommendation from ITU about the, the configuration, the performance of the speaker system and the room itself. So it's a bit similar for more a residential use case, I would say. And, um, and uh, in a way, it's a guarantee for, for listeners that uh, the chain, the quality in every part of the chain is the best we could achieve. It's like Dolby Certified or THX? Yes. So, I mean, it's more uh, an artisan approach. It's not as, uh, as uh, you know, mainstream and, and uh, it's not really a certification process as such, but uh, I would say it's an artisan labor of quality, of craftsmanship, I would say. Does a facility, a venue, have to pay for that? No, so we don't we don't have an, um, a certification process in place at the moment, and uh, we uh, when we equip listening spaces, uh, this is where we can say this is uh, blue space certified. But uh, it's really about making sure the design intent has been respected and the end result is respected. And uh, it always comes up with calibration processes and services that that you know make part of the the system price and. Uh, for the rest, for the recording guidelines and the and the, the mixing guidelines, then we are usually working hand in hand with the creators of the pieces to make sure that uh, they, they can they can make the best out of it. So it's more like a collaboration on the creation side and a certification on the listening side, if you want. Okay. 
Has Al Acoustics come out with loudspeakers specifically for this? That's a great question. So maybe the question I could I could reformulate it in a way: Is there a better speaker design for you know immersive audio reproduction, for example, compared to stereo? That's maybe that that could be the question. The answer is. Um, when we design immersive system, we try to overlap the, the coverage of every loudspeaker in the room to make sure that the overlap zone is as wide as possible. So in a way, that's the main design criteria. And at L Acoustics, we pay a lot of attention into how we design the radiation pattern for every loudspeaker. So, you know, we have different categories from a point source to a line array with, with some intermediate speakers types in betweens. But um, it's really about where we want to focus the energy. So if we want to focus on just a, a single plane, like let's say a floor with standing listeners in an in a event space, for example, we would tend to propagate the energy more in a horizontal domain than a vertical domain. So this is in a way we shape the energy in a specific direction to cover, to overlap a lot on this, um, on this single plane, I would say. So to answer your question, it's really about how do we want to control the energy in 3D? And it's a very generic question. So the rules we follow for immersive audio design, they also apply for stereo. So when we started to think about what, how can we improve the speakers for immersive audio, it led us to also make improvements for stereo configuration. So that was quite interesting. It's really all about how to control the energy in space. One of the problems on the home side is the fact that most people can't put together a, a loudspeaker system. And as a result, then you have all of these uh, multi-radiating loudspeakers that are bouncing off the ceiling and off the wall and everything. Some sound okay, but that's a major problem. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. I did a lot of 5.1 mixing for DVDs and SACDs back in the day when it was hot. And the biggest problem was on the consumer side. It was never on the creation side or the distribution side. It was always getting the consumer. And it was yep. very frustrating when, even if they'd buy a 5.1 system, the speakers would be <laughs> all in the wrong places. and so. Below the sofa. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree with that remark. It's really a, a, a consumer setup issue. And I believe this is why it always remain maybe a minor format compared to stereo because it's it's hard to deploy uh, in, in various environments. It's hard to control the environment. So in a way, when we, we started ELISA uh, for live sound, it was a much more controlled environment where you can control the source, the mixing, and the speaker deployment. So it was the golden triangle, you know, it, it was much easier to control the experience. I believe now for immersive audio in, in consumer formats, there is potentially a, a good opportunity nowadays with people, it might be a bit underwhelming, but the headphones might be a good format still. And there we see a lot of people, and I think that's the main use case still for all the immersive format we see like Dolby Atmos and Sony 360. A lot of people will listen to them on headphones. So a lot of podcasts are listening, uh, a lot of podcast listeners are listening on headphones as well. So sometimes it might be almost a bijection between how you create the, the, the piece and how people will listen to it. So it's quite interesting. Another very controlled environment that's going to arrive very soon is the car. And we see a lot of car manufacturers uh, deploying immersive audio systems as well. So maybe that's going to help. And 
But to come back to the home cinema or the system around your TV screen, I think that's still an issue. And 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 there is the 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 economical solution, which is what you just say. The soundbar might be the best trade-off at the moment. It's in. It, it's not great. A lot of people. It's funny. I was talking to some people from BBC R and D, and they always they did some test, you know, blind test, and people would always prefer a good pair of stereo speakers compared to a soundbar. But anyway, yeah, could be a marketing issue as well. But I think the, the there could be other concepts, and maybe it's not going to be as mainstream as as a soundbar. But uh, we're trying to deploy a concept of sound space where actually you would pave as much as you can the walls with with loudspeakers they might be smaller they might be already part of the building or part of the room design by default and this is where you could start to have a kind of canvas for sound it's a bit like when you do lighting you know in a room you when you put walls you put lights why not put sound as well by default i always felt that way that immersive audio wouldn't really take off until we had some new loudspeaker technology that maybe made the walls radiate or something like that, where it was built in and you didn't have to worry about it. It was just there. So it would be much better all the way around to make it work and there'd be less pushback from the consumer as well. Yeah, and so there is some technology aspect. There is also some, I would say, um, project management aspect or just you know, thought process when you design a space, people are very visual. You you know, if you talk to architects, they will always tell show you some nice visuals, but there is no sound on the visuals. When you go to a tech conference for architects, they would show you this amazing VR experiments. So I am inside a building and that's gonna be your building in five years, but there is never any sound there. So we need to catch up with the visual domain and, and make sure sound is taken into account as early as possible, even in, in building designs that's that's the only way we're going to manage to to make it happen to be honest where do you see immersive audio going or is there a new technology that maybe is just emerging now so i think it has been driven uh, at least on the live side it has been driven a lot by um by the technology and the manufacturers so for example at acoustics obviously there is an interest to sell more loudspeakers obviously it's better to sell you know surround hide speakers etc but i think it will it will slowly and surely become uh, a creation topic and um, once the creatives uh, have the tools the easy to use tools mainstream tools to create in in, in space it's going to become a, a no-brainer and it means that then on the on the listening side it will it will um it will become a bit more ubiquitous and i think there are some other disrupting technologies that will help the conversation what i've seen maybe the difference between today and uh, the 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 release of 5 5.1 formats might be that uh, there is a lot of big tech companies uh developing ar augmented reality uh there is going to be potentially very innovative personal devices where binaural sound is going to be native as well. And, and, and I'm very excited to see what's going to come in the next three to five years in terms of consumer devices and use cases. I think there's a lot of use cases we don't know yet. Last question, Guillaume. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Or maybe the best thing that you learned along the way that you would tell somebody else? I think the best thing um, in the audio domain is uh, 
ask for help or ask for advice because I would say audio is a lifelong journey and learning process. I still learn every day. I, I enjoy that. And uh, there is so much you can judge with your own two ears. It's always good to have advice from an additional person or talk to a friend. And um, and it's, you know, I think it, it doesn't have to be so personal or individual. So I think in that regard, uh, it's really about being well surrounded by, by people that can help you on your journey. And I find the audio community has been super, always super friendly and, and open to helping and, and younger generations and, and other people. So this is something I enjoy very much in the industry. You can find out more about Gayum and Elisa Studio at elisaimmersive.com. That's L-ISA-immersive.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I'll see you next time.